This podcast deals with themes of an adult nature and may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. In the early 1920s, Indiana was at the center of a Ku Klux Klan revival. With over 250,000 members, the Klan was visible, blatant in its aims, violent, and very public in its displays of dominance over those they believed inferior. This included anyone who was not them. The abduction and murder of one woman in 1925 set in motion a series of events that would cripple the growth and influence of the Indiana clan forever. I am your host, Rory Jane McCormick, and this is Propensity, a true crime anthology podcast. The theme of this season is captivity, and this is the story of Madge Oberholster. The automobile lurched on the unfinished road. Every shudder, every dip caused Madge Oberholzer pain. The 28-year-old's body was cold. She fell in and out of lucidity. How long had she been in the vehicle? An hour, maybe two? Where was she going? Lying across the back seat, she could only see open sky and tree branches. The nausea caused her insides to twist, the pain arriving in waves. She closed her eyes, willing it to be over. Reaching her hand to her chest, she winced. Open cavities where flesh and skin had once been. They covered her neck, chest and shoulders. She could still taste blood in her mouth from where he had half bitten her tongue off. When she opened her eyes, she saw buildings jutting into the skyline. Before long, the car had stopped. The men carried her out of the vehicle and upstairs to a strange bed. She thought being out of the car and able to rest would bring some comfort, but it didn't change anything. She was their captive and everything was different now. It was the beginning of the end. Madge Augustine Oberholster was born in Irvington, Indiana in November 1896. Her parents were of German descent. Her father George was a postal clerk and her mother Matilda a homemaker. Her family were well respected in their community and attended Irvington Methodist Church. Madge was passionate about learning and as a young woman attended Butler College in Irvington. She studied English, logic, mathematics and zoology. She later worked as a teacher. She spent three years studying for her degree, but before she finished, she abandoned her program. She never disclosed to anyone her reasons why. 
Madge had petitioned the Indiana Department of Public Instruction to create the Indiana Young People's Reading Circle. This was an educational program aimed at increasing literacy rates among some of the most disadvantaged populations in her home state. She later managed that program. On the 12th of January 1925, Madge attended the inauguration party of newly elected Indiana Governor Edward L. Jackson. It was here at this banquet in the Athletic Club in Indianapolis that Madge first met D.C. Stevenson. Stevenson was the Grand Dragon of the Indiana branch of the Ku Klux Klan, or KKK. He asked her for a date the very first evening they met at the banquet, but she turned him down. Eventually, after much persistence, she agreed to have dinner with him. After that first date, Stevenson was insistent that Madge would go out with him again. Madge, on the other hand, didn't seem too keen. He called her home several times on the telephone. When she finally agreed to another dinner date, the two went to the Washington Hotel, a French neoclassical-style hotel in central Indianapolis. It still stands today. After this second date, Madge and Stevenson, or Steve as he was known, saw each other more frequently. Madge even helped him write a nutrition book titled 100 Years of Help. Madge had intended to use some of her connections that she had built through the Reading Circle program to arrange for this book to be distributed through school libraries. Before long, Madge had ended her relationship with Steve. The two appeared to have had an altercation at a party thrown by Steve at his mansion. We don't actually have details as to how that altercation played out, or what the resolution, if any, was. In 1989, a critically acclaimed TV miniseries was made based on Madge's life. The 1989 TV miniseries Cross of Fire starred Mel Harris of 30-something fame as Madge and John Hurd as David Curtis Stevenson. If you do get to watch Cross of Fire, you'll see that there's a scene that implies that Stevenson tried to sexualize his relationship with Madge before she was ready, and that this is what caused the breakdown of their relationship before it had really begun. The reason for the breakup was never disclosed by Madge. And there is a distinct possibility that creative liberties were taken when developing the miniseries. We'll probably never know the true reason, as by the time the miniseries was made, most of the people involved were already dead. David Curtis Stevenson was born in August 1891 in Houston, Texas. He later moved with his family to Maysville, Oklahoma. As mentioned earlier, he was known as Steve to his friends, but professionally he was referred to as D.C. Stevenson. He worked as a printer's apprentice before joining the military during the First World War. He completed officer training but was never sent overseas, and he never served on the front line. In 1915, Stevenson met and married his first wife, Nettie Hamilton, in Oklahoma. He also began working for a newspaper in Medill that same year. 
By 1916, he'd lost his job and abandoned his pregnant wife. By 1917, he'd moved to the city of Cushing. It was here that Nettie tracked him down to file for divorce. He joined the military and met and married his second wife, Violet Carroll, soon after. Steve was reportedly extremely violent towards Violet and his first wife. He and Violet divorced in 1922. After his second divorce, he began dating his 22-year-old secretary. Steve bragged about his heroics on the battlefields of Europe to anyone who would listen. When in reality, he worked as a military recruiter in Iowa for much of the war. In 1920, when he was 29, Steve got a job working for the Citizens Coal Company and moved to Evansville, Indiana. In 1922, Stevenson joined the Democratic Party. He ran for the Democratic Congressional nomination. Clearly, I am not American, so I had to look this up just to make sure I understood exactly what it would mean. But basically, had he been successful in these efforts, he would have been an elected politician and a member of the U.S. House of Representatives. In the early 1920s, the KKK were expanding their reach. They were actively recruiting new members. Individuals called Kleagles were taken on to recruit new members. This was a financially lucrative position. Kegels were paid a substantial hourly commission. And they also received a percentage of a new member's joining fee. So we could say that they were suitably motivated. And they possibly didn't care too much about the character or values of the people that they were recruiting. To join the KKK, potential members had to meet the following criteria. They had to be American-born, male, white, and Protestant. They practiced block recruitment, which basically meant that they could recruit multiple members from a single source. They frequented fraternal lodges and Protestant churches, and they were quite clever in how they went about this. The clan was anti-Catholic, anti-Semitic, anti-immigrant, and anti-black. This new and revitalized clan sold themselves to the public as pillars of social virtue. They aligned themselves to churches and selected charitable activities that could be mapped to their overall goals. In a lot of ways, they acted like a business and a political organization. They used controlled acts of public violence to impress potential clan members and also to silence their opponents. Prohibition was a constitutional law in the United States between 1920 and 1933. Under Prohibition, the production, importation, transportation and sale of alcohol was banned. The temperance movement began as groups of loosely associated fringe Christian groups who campaigned for the abolition of alcohol throughout the 19th century. As the 20th century began, these groups became more organised and united under the Women's Christian Temperance Union and the Men's Anti-Saloon League. They firmly placed the blame for the debauchery and violence that alcohol enabled at the door of saloon culture. 
Those involved in saloon culture were mostly Catholic immigrants from Europe and Latin America. Conveniently, this fit in very well with the aims and objectives of the KKK. It gave them legal means to target many of the populations they despised. The KKK were so pivotal to the enforcement of prohibition in many US states that it helped to expedite their rise and influence throughout the 1920s. Thomas Pegram, a history professor at Loyola University, said that it was, quote, really a battle for cultural supremacy in a country that was changing, end quote. He said the prohibition became a way in which that prejudice could be enforced in local communities. Harvard University history professor Lisa McGeer believes that prohibition, quote, provided the Klan essentially a kind of new mandate for its anti-Catholic, anti-immigrant, white Protestant national mission, end quote. According to writer Kathy Little, the Klan raided Catholic immigrant homes, quote, burning down their businesses and planting evidence to use against them, end quote. She says that placing immigrants in prison was not the Klan's primary objective. Their objective was to terrorize these communities with impunity, which they did. Little tells us that the fact that the Klansmen often, quote, seized alcohol only to drink it themselves was a clear sign that their raids weren't just about enforcing prohibition, end quote. It strikes me that so many individuals gravitate towards these kinds of groups, even now, not because they truly believe in their cause, whatever that may be, but because they are angry and want to inflict violence on others. The group then becomes a mob, and they can justify their violent acts to each other. They can egg each other on. It also gives them a shield behind which they can hide. They're never forced to take responsibility for what they have done. Their misdeeds have now been absorbed by and simultaneously absolved by their group. They can tell themselves whatever they did was in service of a worthy cause. And they seldom lose sleep over the blood that has been shed. In 1923, D.C. Stevenson was appointed Grand Dragon of the Indiana Clan. He was also the head of clan recruiting for seven other states. In late 1923, he supervised a break away from the National KKK organization. We don't really know if this was to solidify his own power base, independent of the established clan, or if there were deeper divisions. At its peak, the Indiana clan had 250,000 members. That's a quarter of a million members in a single state. Those numbers are huge. This accounted for approximately 30% of the Indiana white male population. Stevenson curated close relationships with politicians, law enforcement, and other powerful interests throughout Indiana. His own interests, however, were always at the forefront of his mind. At a Klan assembly on the 12th of May, 1924, Stevenson gave the following promise to the crowd. He said, quote, 
God help the man who issues a proclamation of war against the clan in Indiana now. We are going to clux Indiana as she has never been cluxed before. And the fiery cross is going to burn at every crossroads in Indiana as long as there is a white man left in the state. End quote. As abhorrent as that statement is, I can only imagine that it's mild compared to some of the other things that he said that were not written down or publicised. Stevenson's public reputation was going from strength to strength. In private, however, those around him were busy suppressing reports of sexual assaults, attempted rapes, and other alcohol-induced rampages. When he lived in Ohio, he was caught by a police officer in a state of undress in his car with his secretary. He pled guilty to a charge of indecent exposure. In January 1924, Stevenson reportedly attempted to rape a manicurist who had been sent to his hotel room. Reports state that he punched a bellboy who attempted to intervene. Also in 1924, at a party at his mansion, he locked an actress in a room, lunged at her, bit her and tried to force himself on her. Many within the clan viewed Stevenson as a liability. Hiram Evans, Imperial Wizard of the KKK, had previously joined forces with Stevenson and others in what amounted to a coup against the existing clan leadership. By 1924, this relationship too had become strained. Evans sought to use these reports to oust Stevenson from the clan for good. That same year, Evans convened a clan tribunal against Stevenson. Some of the charges included, quote, habitual drunkenness and demonstrating disrespect for virtuous womanhood, end quote. Stevenson was found guilty on six charges and a 50-page report on his misdeeds was published for all to see. Stevenson dismissed the charges as a conspiracy. He ignored the punishment of banishment and he labelled it as being merely a plot of the Southern clan who were trying to get revenge on him for the earlier split. On the evening of Sunday the 15th of March 1925, Madge was out with a friend. Once back at home, her mother informed her that Stevenson's secretary had called and left a message for her. It was 10pm. The message said that Steve was leaving for a meeting in Chicago and asked for her to call him about the Reading Circle programme. Madge knew that the programme was in danger of being eliminated due to budget cuts. When she called him back, he said that he'd use his influence to lobby for the continuation of the programme, but only if she would meet with him. She agreed and he sent an escort to collect her. Madge changed into a black velvet dress and met with Gentry, one of Stevenson's bodyguards. Once at Steve's property, Madge was ushered into the kitchen by Steve. According to Madge's later sworn testimony, she said that as soon as she entered the house, she was very much afraid. She quickly realised that she was alone with three men and that there were no other women at the house, not even the housekeeper. Soon, a fourth man arrived at the back door. He was introduced to Madge as either Earl Clink or Clink. 
For this story, we'll refer to him as Clink as per the court records. They forced her to glug several glasses of whiskey until she was physically sick. She suspected that this drink had been laced with an unknown substance, as she very quickly felt ill. Steve had been drinking heavily before she arrived. He demanded that she go to Chicago with him. She declined saying that she had to go home. They wouldn't allow her to leave. They also prevented her from getting to a telephone to call her parents. Steve told her, quote, I love you more than any woman I have ever known, end quote. The men then took Madge upstairs to a bedroom. Once in the bedroom, Steve opened a dresser drawer. In the drawer was a selection of handguns. He told each man to take one. When they'd each made their selection, Steve selected a pearl handle revolver for himself. He instructed his driver Shorty to load it in full view of Madge. This was an intimidation tactic. He knew exactly what he was doing. And it worked. Steve and Gentry forced Madge into a vehicle. They drove around Indianapolis making some stops, but at no stage would they allow Madge to exit the vehicle. Madge said at this time, quote, I was dazed and terrified that my life would be taken, and I didn't know what to do. Stevenson would not let me out of the car, and I was afraid he would kill me. End quote. When Madge protested, he told her that he, quote, was the law in Indiana, end quote. The trio boarded a train and Madge was led into a private compartment. Gentry took the top berth and Stevenson indicated that he would take the bottom one. Please be aware that this next section deals with an account of sexual assault. If you prefer not to listen, please skip ahead. Madge says that Stevenson, quote, took hold of the bottom of my dress and pulled it up over my head. I tried to fight but was weak and unsteady. What I had drunk was affecting me, end quote. Stevenson proceeded to rape her repeatedly. She said that he, quote, chewed me all over my body, bit my neck and face, chewing my tongue, chewed my breast until they bled, my back, my legs, my ankles, and mutilated me all over my body, end quote. The next morning, Stevenson informed her that they would be exiting the train at Hammond, Indiana. This was 30 minutes shy of Chicago. By this time, the effects of the alcohol and drugs were wearing off, and Madge once again had a clear head. Stevenson was flourishing his revolver, and Madge baited him to just shoot her. He pushed the tip of the revolver to her side, and she didn't flinch, but he decided against following through. Madge walked to the Indiana Hotel, flanked by Gentry and Stevenson. They arrived at 6.30am. Here, Stevenson registered them as husband and wife. They checked into room 416 and Madge begged him to send a telegram to her mother. 
he told her that he would and dictated a telegram for Madge to write. Gentry left the room, allegedly to send it. We don't know if this actually happened. The records don't indicate that Madge's parents actually received a telegram at all. Surprisingly, once alone in the hotel room, Stevenson apologised to Madge, saying that he was, quote, three degrees less than a brute, end quote. Madge countered that by telling him that he was worse than that. Soon after this exchange, Shorty arrived, having driven Stevenson's Cadillac from Indianapolis. Madge was able to leave the hotel to buy a hat, supervised and accompanied by Shorty. She persuaded him to allow her to go to a druggist to buy some rouge, but instead used the remainder of the money that Stevenson had given her to purchase mercury tablets. At the time, these could easily be purchased over the counter. No prescription needed, no questions asked. As a content warning, this next section references suicide. Suicide will also be mentioned briefly throughout the rest of this story. When she returned to the hotel, the men had begun drinking alcohol again. At 10 a.m. on Monday morning, Madge was able to go to the adjoining room that Gentry was staying in. Once there, she swallowed six of the 18 mercury tablets she had bought. She later said that she could only manage six as they burned her throat so badly. Earlier, between Gentry sending the telegram and Shorty arriving, Madge was able to take Stevenson's revolver in her hand. First, she had pointed at Stevenson, contemplating shooting him as he slept. She turned from him, looked at herself in the mirror, and pointed the gun at her temple. She was resolute in her decision, but decided to change her mode of dispatch. She said she did this to spare her mother the disgrace of suicide by gunshot, which would have been scandalous at the time. It was 4pm by the time one of the men checked on Madge. She'd been vomiting blood for most of the day. She told Shorty what she'd done and soon all three men were in the room with her. Stevenson said he would take her to the hospital to have her stomach pumped, but only if she agreed to first go to Crown Point and marry him. Eventually, Stevenson decided to forgo his business in Chicago and agreed to drive back to Indianapolis. Shorty drove and Gentry sat in the front passenger seat. Stevenson and Madge were seated in the back. During the entire 14-hour journey back to Indianapolis, Stevenson and Gentry drank alcohol. Shorty was instructed to remove the license plates from the car and to tell any police officers who stopped them that they'd been stolen in the previous town. According to Madge, Stevenson didn't try to make her comfortable in any way. She says that he said to Gentry, quote, This takes guts to do, Gentry. She's dying. End quote. She also overheard him say that he'd been in a worse mess than this before and gotten out of it. Madge's condition was growing worse and she begged him to leave her on the side of the road reasoning that if he wouldn't help her, then a passerby surely would. 
He refused to drive her home, but instead drove her directly to his mansion. He placed her in a loft above his garage and closed the door. She overheard Shorty telling Stevenson that her mother was at the door, but she couldn't get to her. Again, he told her, quote, You'll stay right here until you marry me, end quote. Looking at the situation and his past behaviour with women and indeed multiple wives. It's probable that Stevenson intended to marry Madge not out of love or affection, but to legally absolve himself of any criminal acts he may be charged with. This would be particularly true if she died soon afterwards, which he appeared to believe that she would. On Tuesday morning, Clink shook Madge awake and told her that she had to go home. He placed her in Stevenson's vehicle and drove the short distance to her home. She had previously been warned to say that she'd been in a car accident. Stevenson had told her, quote, You must forget this. What is done has been done. I am the law and the power. End quote. Once she was home, Clink carried her upstairs and placed her in her own bed. Her parents weren't home at the time, but a boarder, Eunice Schultz, heard groaning and saw Madge being carried inside. Straight away, she called the family's doctor, John Kingsbury. When Madge had failed to return from her meeting with Stevenson on Sunday night, her parents searched everywhere for her. They searched for days with no clue or sign to indicate where she might be. They knew she'd left with an unknown male associate of Stevenson's and that she'd been on her way to his mansion. That is where Matilda searched for her daughter and where she encountered Stevenson and Gentry when they'd returned from Hammond. They concealed Madge's whereabouts and encouraged her mother to leave. When Clink returned Madge to her family home, her parents were consulting with their family lawyer, Asa Smith. When Dr. Kingsbury arrived, he saw that Madge was in a state of shock. She had bruises all over her body, including lacerations on her cheek, stomach, legs and ankles. The skin on her breast was open. At first, Madge was reluctant to disclose what had happened to her. Eventually, she told Dr. Kingsbury the entire story. Testing proved that Madge was suffering from acute kidney inflammation, likely a result of the mercury poisoning. The bite marks that Stevenson had inflicted on her had become infected. Madge was transferred to the hospital and her stomach was pumped, but they couldn't reverse the damage that had been done by the staph infection and mercury poisoning. During the later trial, Dr. Kingsbury would testify that Madge's wounds appeared as though, quote, a cannibal had chewed her, end quote. On the 28th of March, 1925, less than two weeks after Madge's return to her family, Dr. Kingsbury delivered the devastating news to Madge that she would not recover from her injuries. Madge reportedly said, quote, That is all right, doctor. I am ready to die. I believe you and I am ready to die. End quote. It was during this period of time that Madge dictated and signed her sworn statement to witnesses, 
This statement, sworn and witnessed by lawyer Asa Smith, was a dying declaration and therefore was admissible in any future court case. Madge died on the 14th of April, 1925, 30 days after her initial attack. The autopsy couldn't conclusively determine Madge's cause of death, only that it was a combination of lack of early intervention, shock, mercury poisoning and complications from the staph infection. The official cause of death was mercury poisoning. William Remy, Marion County Prosecutor, levied charges of rape, kidnapping, conspiracy and second-degree murder against Stevenson. Remy was one of the few officials in a position of power that was not under Stevenson's control. Stevenson's trial was moved to nearby Hamilton County. It began in late October 1925. This was six months after Madge's death. By then, most of his political allies had publicly distanced themselves from him. Stevenson's defense attorney, Ephraim Inman, argued that the wounds and mercury ingestion were self-inflicted and that these were the direct cause of Madge's death. Inman claimed, quote, If this so-called dying declaration declares anything, it is a dying declaration of suicide, not homicide. End quote. He also argued, unsuccessfully, that the entire trial was a clan conspiracy against his client. Stevenson was never called to testify. On the 14th of November, 1925, exactly seven months after Madge's death, a jury of 12 men found Stevenson guilty of murder in the second degree. Separately, both Gentry and Clink were acquitted. Stevenson was sentenced to life imprisonment for his role in Madge's death. He was relegated to serve his sentence at Indiana State Prison. Stevenson was incensed that his former political allies had abandoned him. After the trial, former ally Governor Jackson was in a position to commute Stevenson's sentence or pardon him both of which he declined to do. In retaliation, Stevenson released secret lists of public officials who had received bribes from the Klan. As evidence, Stevenson produced a signed contract pledging loyalty to him from each official. He knew what he was doing and he had been covering his back the entire time. He had hidden them away just in case he needed them in the future. This caused a huge political scandal in the state of Indiana. It also had implications for the future of the Indiana clan. Prior to Stevenson's conviction, the clan had been a growing political and social force in the state of Indiana. Stevenson had publicly styled himself as a prohibitionist and, according to his Wikipedia entry, a defender of, quote, Protestant womanhood, end quote. The public outrage that followed his trial and subsequent conviction alienated a large number of Indiana clan members. It's reported that entire lodges quit their clan membership en masse. Indiana clan membership dropped by thousands in a very short time frame. Between 1925 and 1927, 
178,000 members exited the organization. In 1926, Stevenson began collaboration with the Indianapolis Times newspaper. This is how he leaked the evidence he had on elected officials, including Governor Jackson and Indianapolis Mayor John Duval. It also included the head of the Republican Party in Marion County, Indiana. The Indianapolis Times expose linked the Klan to political corruption and led to charges to be laid against several powerful individuals. Indiana had been a Klan stronghold in the Midwest in the early to mid-1920s. But the organization never recovered from this scandal. Klan memberships deeply declined. They were never able to achieve the legitimacy that would have allowed them to continue to rise as a political force. In March 1950, Stevenson was released on parole, but by September that same year, he disappeared, violating the conditions of his parole. He was recaptured several months later in December 1950. His sentence was extended by an additional 10 years. Stevenson appealed for release in 1953 and stated to the panel, despite all evidence to the contrary, that he had never been a leader of the Klan. He was released on parole in 1956. Five years after his release from prison, Stevenson was once again arrested on charges of sexually assaulting a 16-year-old girl in Tennessee. These charges were dropped due to insufficient evidence. Stevenson died a free man in 1964 at the age of 74. This podcast was written, researched, produced and narrated by me, Rory Jane McCormick. All episode sources can be found on the episode page on propensitypod.com. Please share this episode with someone you think might enjoy it as it really helps to grow the podcast. Mm-hmm.